1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Dr. Adriana Helbig. Adriana is Associate Professor of Music at the University of Pittsburgh, where she teaches, researches, and publishes on a variety of topics at the intersection of ethnomusicology, critical race studies, and migration studies. Her book, Resounding Poverty, Romani Music and Development Aid, which was published in 2023 by Oxford University Press, analyzes the economic structures within which Romani music circulates and the impact of economic networks on the daily lives of Romani musicians in post-socialist contexts. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Adriana, for joining me.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So, first to start off, could you talk a little bit about how you got to this topic? Uh, Your book is quite personal and reflective at times about your positionality as a researcher and your personal connections to the region and the community that you work on. And so, I think it would be interesting for listeners to hear about how and why you arrived at this particular research project, especially since, as you write about in the book, this is a project that you've undertaken throughout most of your adult life.
0: Correct. It's taken almost 20 years to uh, see this come out in print. Uh, This was a topic of my dissertation uh, going back to the late 1990s. Uh, The dissertation was completed in 2005 at Columbia University. And by then, I had already experienced the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. Uh, Since then, uh, we've lived through the Revolution of Dignity uh, in 2014, um, and now the present war so the um the story actually goes back even further than that going back to world war ii uh, when my family left what is now western uh, ukraine and came to the united states and when we're looking at um nomadism and we're looking at migration i always see that as a center of my own experience simply because i've always had to live in multiple worlds and now as we're looking back through history um, each decade has been a world of its own um, when we're looking at the history of ukraine um so i think uh, you know as the story unfolds uh, that is definitely the gist of it and that's why i make myself uh, really the center Um, story in a way, simply because a lot of this had to be reflective. I couldn't publish much of what I was experiencing at the time, putting people in danger. And even now we're looking at this consistently as I'm wondering how to the extent to which I want to highlight certain people's stories and experiences, um, while at the same time knowing that should the direction of the war turn this way or that way, they would be at the center of of another conflict, uh, whether personal or political. Right.
1: And so this is not
0: sort of the focus of
1: your work at all, but this is a podcast about nomadism. And since you just brought it up, um, I did want to ask about sort of the nature of or the relationship to nomadism among your research communities. You do discuss a little bit, the differences between nomadic and sedentary Roma groups in the region, as well as, you know, historical patterns of forced migration locally, and the kind of global Romani diaspora. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of what, if any, are the connections between mobility and music and music making in this context?
0: the stereotype for roma in ukraine is that everyone is nomadic um i did not meet any nomadic groups Uh, by the time that i was doing my research everybody was in a very sedentary um, history except um, that in the 90s everybody was trying to leave ukraine or trying to find a different experience for themselves so there were a lot of people that were moving from villages into cities Um, there were people that were moving from villages uh you know, across borders into other villages and then trying to especially out of the western parts of Ukraine uh, to move into um, Europe. Um, And I think when we're looking at mobility, um, who has the abilities to change their experiences, that becomes key. And that's why the center uh, or the central theme of the book is poverty. Um, when we're looking at access as to who was able to cross borders. And this is, again, going back to my even my own family's experiences. How is it that certain people were able to actually um, pay their way across borders and to be able to um, make a life uh, in a different um, context? So the stereotype, and even to this day, among Ukrainians, among non-Roma, is that Roma are nomadic and constantly this narrative is so strong um, It gets replicated in films, Um, for instance, in song. um, There's a lot of, you know, runaway with the with the Roma kind of romanticism that 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 non-Roma tend to have. Um, But as as I've experienced in uh, Transcarpathia, in the Zakarpattia, which is the westernmost borders of uh, Ukraine. Th- these were uh, settlements that were around already going back to the 19th century. And you just
1: brought this up a little bit as well, but could you talk a bit about um, sort of the nature of class and class differences among the Roma communities that you worked on? Because This is, this is like you just said, one of the kind of main themes of your book as well is the relationship between music and class um, and how music um, and music making and being a musician allows certain people to kind of lift themselves out of the extreme poverty um, that many of the Roma in Western Ukraine Face, but also how often um, in light of how um, development aid functions, uh, often the same people kind of get trapped in these cycles of poverty. And that was a really sort of complex issue a kind of complex theme of your book. So could you talk a little bit about those kind of um, those connections?
0: Right, so addressing physical mobility, but especially social mobility. Uh, So going back to musicians, uh, when we're looking at um, urban musicians, and again, I'll focus on Transcarpathia because that's where most of the research was done. um, In places like Ushorod, Mukachevo, uh, we had Roma, musicians that were performing for non-roma they were using cosmopolitan repertoires um, predominantly hungarian at the time Uh, but this was done to entertain um, and this was uh, a class narrative so those that were urban were considered to be a higher class uh, Roma, especially the musicians. And partly because they were engaging with non-Roma, they had more access to uh, finances. And of course, their physicality was different as well, right? So they were wearing clothes that was more assimilative, and they were um, participating in non-Roma ways of life. Uh, When we're looking at urban music making uh, or or rural music making to compare, for instance, uh, we have a situation where... Roma, who ended up in rural areas, were forcefully settled. So this was uh, a policy uh, that was being always put in place when we're thinking of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in different ways. Uh, But by the time we're looking at the Soviet period, um, they are uh, forcefully put into areas wherever they were migrating. And we're thinking of migration as seasonal work, for instance. So people are now disjointed. They're disconnected from their kinship um, units. And they're living in areas where there's no industry, where there's no ability to actually move forward in some kind of uh, socially mobile way. Mm -hmm. Um, And what's ironic, are two things. The first is that Romani music per se um, starts to fall in a way. Um, it's not highlighted the way that it would be in the Yugoslav um, uh, context, for instance, where Romani musicians were sort of at the forefront of you know Romani uh, of of Yugoslav uh, music industries. Um, but they are in rural areas where there are music schools. So this was one of the policies of the Soviet uh, era was to offer education, but musical education was of classical music education. So here you have this ironic context where you have musicians that may not have enough money to purchase a violin, but they are extremely... Fluent in um, music theory, mm-hmm. and this was a, a music theory even that I couldn't even engage with. I mean, this was in in Russian, but it, this was so advanced that you know, again, the the this juncture of what's actually happening in these in these places is so complex, and then you're adding the. Um, You know, the foreign aid, which is coming with its own stereotypes and and wishes of what it wants to actually see once this money comes into these villages and into these urban contexts.
1: Mm. And this might be, well, this is a very sort of basic or maybe silly question, but how would you actually explain or characterize Romani music, maybe just especially from this region, to someone who's not familiar with it? At all, you know, I think uh, to the extent that there are certainly certain famous or well known uh, Romani musicians or bands like Gogol Bordello, who you uh, write about in your book is probably the best known to like my generation, for example, but how would you characterize that style or that aesthetic of music?
0: Well, I think if we're looking at Gogo Bordello, we're actually looking at a fusion genre that gets brought back to Ukraine. And that, again, is, is a wonderful story, but also very complex in the sense that uh, this, this drawing of this pan-Balkan style that becomes popular in the 1990s, you have uh, elements of klezmer, um, you have made-up sounds that are then uh, sort of being brought back into uh, cities um, in Ukraine. And again, Eugen coming from from Kyiv and and being a very respected musician in his own right um, in Ukraine, then creating a whole nother genre of Romani music. But we have multiple genres of of music, and that's why it becomes very complex. If you're looking at Uzra, if you're looking at Transcarpathia, you're looking more at this Budapest restaurant style of music, public music making, where you have a very strong emphasis on string instruments. Um, It's a very male genre. Um, If there is a musician who is singing, it's usually a woman. Um, So so these types of very traditional ways uh, are still very inherent um, when you're thinking of the 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 major cities in Transcarpathia. If you're looking at rural music making, you have personal stories. So you have a lot of a cappella, you have people um, singing nostalgic songs, everybody has their own song, right, this, this kind of element. Um, so private genres. So these are not uh, the, the genres that I was necessarily focusing on, because they were not the ones that were funded. But uh, for instance, if you're looking at Murashchukawa and Popov's research, they focus on the private songs that you would hear uh, in, in, uh, you know, the kitchen setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have wedding music, right? So you have, um, again, this, this notion of of these very uh f- fusion-based genres that were already fused hundreds of years ago when you're looking at Romani musicians playing along with klezmer musicians uh, when you're looking at the structure of the hutzel band which is the this the the um, ukrainian version of this in the Carpathian Mountains. So you have the drum and you have the accordion, you have the cymbale, right? You have the cimbalum, uh, the hammer dulcimer, um, the violin. So again, the structure of the band is actually similar. And then when you're looking at who knew whose repertoire, you had to be very fluent because each of these villages had multiple ethnic groups. So the the issue is when you're looking at migration, and when people start to leave, they start to leave a very multicultural context behind, and then they move and find their own people. And so when we're looking at diaspora, the, the problem starts to happen is when we're looking at diaspora, only as ethnic enclaves. versus the history, which actually had a fusion and of neighbors, Mm -hmm. right? So you Mm -hmm. had Romani neighbors, Jewish neighbors, um, Hungarian neighbors, all living in the same small village Mm -hmm. and knowing each other and knowing each other's music.
1: Mm -hmm. And so something that comes up quite a bit in my research um, in terms of how uh, NGOs or development organizations work with indigenous and nomadic communities in, um, the Middle East, where I do my research is there's often this kind of tension between authenticity or sort of in air quotes, authenticity and kind of preserving tradition and a, uh, compulsion or a drive to modernize um and kind of bring modernity and improvement and development and all of those nice buzzwords to those communities. Um, and I'm wondering what that looks like perhaps in your context. Um, to what extent, you know, you just brought this up, um, you know, that these uh, that the development organizations that work in Transcarpathia, um, you know, have their own kind of goals and their own sort of stereotypes um, of the local Romani communities as well that kind of come to bear on how, what they fund, how they fund that, you know, things like that. So does that, are, is there kind of a parallel in this context as well, this sort of, you um, this, this kind of clash between preserving the old and bringing the new when talking about how um, development organizations kind of encounter and work with Romani musicians specifically?
0: I think that's an excellent question. And I think uh, just to make it e- even a little bit more complex, uh, one of the issues that when you're looking at a, at a country like Ukraine, or actually I think <laughs> maybe Ukraine is kind of, hits all the the topics on all of this Ukraine was very much the border of numerous empires and so when you're looking at Eastern parts of Ukraine a very different history when you're talking about the Russian Empire you have the South when you're talking about um a very strong Muslim presence the Crimean Khanate you have the Austrian uh Austro-Hungarian elements you have Polish so all of these parts of Ukraine have very, very different uh, Romani groups. Right. So so they speak not so much that they speak different languages, but there are different ideologies. um, There are different cultures and customs. But but when I'm saying different, I'm saying very different. Um, And one of the things that actually happens in the 90s when the uh, foreign aid begins to come into Romany uh, enclaves is that there's a disproportionate number uh, amount of funding that happens in the Western parts of the country. In parts, because uh, when you're looking at the Soros Foundation, when you, it's very strong um, influence in Hungary at the time, that Western part, that Transcarpathian part, has that Hungarian history and you have a lot of connections, personal connections and that that imbalance uh, or, or that starts to happen, it's pushing against Soviet history because the 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 prevalence at that time in the Soviet era was of course the eastern parts because they were closest to the Soviet um, Soviet Union. And so you have the, you know, the Russian speaking Roma, you have um, those that are that are replicating the uh, aesthetics of theater uh, uh Roman in Moscow, um, you have the romance, which is the genre that's that's very emotional, um, sung by women, very emotionally performed um, by men on the guitar, right? So it's, it's a completely different genre of music and everything else. So that money starts to put all of this intention into tensions, and we start to see, you know, where where does this actually start to end up? Now, eventually, we start to see a balance between Kiev and Ushorod, and eventually now when we're looking at all of this, um, you know, the the notion really is that Kiev is the center and that any Romani um, politicians or um, cultural leaders really are, centered um, in Kyiv. But this is already 30 years into the story uh, with after Ukraine's independence in
1: 1991. And so because you just brought up uh, Romani politicians and cultural leaders, I wanted to ask about uh, music or musicians as activists um, among Romani communities. Um, I've talked, this has come up um, in other episodes of the podcast um, with other interviewees um, who work on sort of indigenous uh, rights activism. Um, And so I wanted to ask about sort of what that looks like uh, among the communities uh, in Transcarpathia. Um, That you focused on. um, To what extent um, are you know, is there an intersection between music, music making sort of performance um, and sort of political? activism.
0: I think that story can actually be replicated across Ukraine. Um mm-hmm. so during my field work, I mean I I have moved everywhere from Kharkiv from the eastern parts to down to uh, Odessa and Crimea um, moving into Kyiv and Lviv and and Ushorod. so all over I saw the same type of pattern. Um, and basically it was that um there was e- either a family or a, a significant figure in the in the community that had a higher status uh, than others, partly because of their abilities to move between Romani and non-Romani um, communities to make money as musicians. And again, this stereotype is so ingrained, right? It's 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 just this automatic, oh, that Roma musicians and again it's it's sort of diffusing but 30 years ago this was sort of a no no question type of situation um what was also happening at the same time is that funding was was really being generously given so if there was an an indicator that there was somebody in a community that could lead then that person created an organization and then within that organization very quickly um funding was was being given funding wasn't given to build um offices but it was given for projects and it was mm-hmm. and what would what would usually happen? It was the musician would apply for funding. Um, typically, there would be, um, you know, his family would be in um, a performance troupe. And now we already have an event. We have a festival. We have uh, a stage with a Romani flag, and you have a political event. And I think this is where um, Romani music and politics really blurred. I mean, it was just inherently growing at the same time. What's happened now is we're looking at. At the second generation of leaders. So these are the sons and daughters of these, of that initial group um, of leaders from the 1990s who have, through funding, benefited from degrees in law, in medicine. They're moving into activism. And even now, we have even a younger generation that is you know, flying to Washington DC, this the the war has changed this whole narrative completely, where this is not something that would have been as typical, um, even 10 years ago. Um, So with, you know, zoom with the pandemic with the internet, I mean, all of this has grown. When I was doing research in the 90s, only 5% of the population had access to the internet. So this is completely different. And now they're calling and saying, Oh, you know, we're two hours away from you, you know, C- come visit right so it's it, and this is again something that uh that kind of professionalism that we're seeing in Romani politics um is unprecedented and I mm-hmm. think this is uh we can I'm just telling the roots of that story and mm-hmm. I think that's why I wrote the book that I did so that those who are able to access this information and it's much easier to access it now can see where this was all actually coming from mm.
1: and so maybe to talk about your kind of personal activism as well, which also comes up in the book. Um, I think it might be interesting for listeners to hear about sort of other projects that you've worked on um, in relation to Romani music and musicians. And in particular, you know, not just as a kind of academic researcher and writer, but also, you know, organizing study trips, bringing uh, Romani musicians and music groups to your classroom. Can you talk about sort of just the other ways um, that you... Uh, approach your study of this topic and your teaching on it?
0: Absolutely. I think it, I mean, it definitely comes from the way that I grew up, right? So, growing up in the 70s in New Jersey, you know, the daughter of immigrants, um, one of the ways that we always brought um, attention to the Ukrainian cause was through culture. I mean, this was this went alongside with all political activities. Um, And so this is something that's always been on my mind. And when I um, engaged with the Romani topic for the first time, I was studying abroad in Vienna, I was studying piano at the uh, um, at the University of Vienna. And this was at the time of the Balkan Wars. And I came across um, basically started to meet refugees uh, from the Kosovo context, um, who, you know, really just ingrained in me that this is uh, the the most central way um, that we were going to actually be able to draw attention to what was actually happening. Um, So when I started doing my dissertation topic, also, uh, you know, just coming back, bringing musicians, meeting musicians in New York. A lot, again, like I said, people in the 1990s were moving out of Ukraine to to um, the West, anywhere in the West, and a lot of them were actually in New York at the time. So, you know, studying in Colombia, uh, bringing a lot of colleagues. That's how I met Eugene Hutz, um, bringing him back to my to my classes, and drawing on my experiences uh, abroad. Then once I become a professor at University of Pittsburgh, um, not only seeing that there was an increase of Romani musicians that were starting to come through the city, because Pittsburgh itself has that Austro-Hungarian history. right? So it's a, sort of a natural loop uh, that people actually come to um, from that um, context. And then having the privilege to organize study abroad um uh programs taking students from the University of Pittsburgh to Prague to Poland uh Hungary uh to music festivals Romani music festivals meeting some of my um, interlocutors from the past actually some of my students saw my pictures in a museum in a Polish in a museum a Romani <laughs> of, hi- of history in Poland um, recognizing me as as you know a, a college age student so you know this this sort of full circle um mm-hmm. has always been part of the story and then when you're looking at memory and when you're looking at experiences and trauma one of the things that you recognize is that trauma really never leaves you mm-hmm. you know and and when you're talking about music and you're asking somebody to sing something from their past right it immediately triggers a memory either that they want or they they don't want and as an as an ethnographer you're you are in the room with them as this is happening so you become the sounding board um, as they start to share and i think this is something that i was absolutely not prepared for Um, but i was i was aware of what this was because my grandmother lived with us. And so even even, you know, that firsthand experience of some of the traumas that that she uh, went through. And I think just now, as I teach uh, fieldwork methods, my goal is simply to prepare students to make sure that if you are going into a context, like you yourself are in a context, what kind of preparations do you have that are beyond the musical Mm-hmm. That can allow you to make it to survive, really to to not crash. Uh, and as as this is all happening, mm-hmm. and I think that's the key, you know, reflective, uh, going back to to everything I've experienced. Mm-hmm.
1: And on that sort of
0: methodological
1: note, um, I would say your book um, deals not just with sort of Romani music, but with kind of soundscapes and the sound of Romani life and villages and communities much more broadly. And you have a really interesting chapter um, on the cough and coughing um, that deals with... Um, smoking, uh, smoking as kind of part of musical performances, and then that how that in turn also intersects with issues of uh, class, uh, like we just talked about. So, could you talk about that? Both that kind of choice. It seems to me like that is something that would have just kind of come up organically to you while you were doing your fieldwork. I don't think that's something you could have prepared for, um, that you could have anticipated, uh, that you would end up sort of encountering that or writing about that. I think that's something that I imagine would have just sort of made itself evident to you while you were doing your field work. But can you talk about just sort of, um, how you kind of made that choice or why it was important to you and sort of what it does for your work and for your book to, um, to acknowledge and to analyze and to write about other sounds um, that are not kind of strictly musical.
0: I think a big part of this um, had to was was taking place during the Black Lives um, Matter movements, mm-hmm. and when the interviews of mothers um, who have lost children uh, to gun violence and to all kinds of ways here uh through um really really horrific situations and i was watching one mother in particular and she's being asked by the by the media well how do you feel how do you feel and you know again just this these very invasive questions Mm -hmm. that were coming and it reminded me of of what actually happens in Romani communities, especially as, as I started to see an increase um, in awareness of Romani topics, where you have an increase in journalists arriving in um, the villages, you know, that we're writing about, um, and these non-governmental organizations as they're highlighting issues. And again, the, the, the negative of the non-governmental organizations is that they created a situation where all Romani um, challenges became the responsibilities of the Romani leaders, um, Mm -hmm. and that kind of allowed the government to not deal with any of these issues. But these, these very meddling questions, uh, are what then trigger that trauma response. And when I started to go back to some of my videos, and this was just at a time, it was the pandemic, I was digitizing things that I had never, you know, really digitized before. And I started to see it in all of my videos, um, that that kind of emotional buildup, right? And it's usually the the woman who who is responsible for for answering um, many of these questions and then the journalists leave and that person has no downtime right there's no ability to to kind of come down from that situation because you're being cast into an immediately equally stressful situation of of the reality of what we're talking about and when I say poverty the poverty is so extreme that you're talking about 20 people living in one house you know and the third the fourth wall is missing simply because there's so many people in there, um, you know, just the, the winters now uh, are so extreme. And then you're, you're, you're talking about just people who are, of course, they're coughing because it's tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, the coughing triggered again by the pandemic stories of coughing, but it was what I was hearing. And when I, again, went back to my, my recordings, I could not unhear it. Mm-hmm. And it was just prevalent. Um, the, the concept of somebody that was sick in, in the corner, right? We were doing the re- recordings on this side of the, the room, and then there was somebody that was sick very close to everybody else. Um, and, and then no access to healthcare, right? You know, all of these things are malnourishment. Um, and then the, the, the smoking is also a big part of this as well, uh, simply because that's one way to cut hunger. Mm-hmm. And, and um you know childhood smoking but also this became a, a way that I was um engaging with a sort of economic situation in the village because I couldn't pay everybody to, um, you know, in, in exchange for for an interview, but I had access to cigarettes, mm-hmm. and so now you're 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 using that as a barter and cigarettes in in just a way like for instance marble like red marble from America that was a way to bribe in the Soviet Union. So that holdover of you know that kind of element was still very much in play um uh at this point i i don't think that this would work now right mm. i am told always to stop smoking when i go there so <laughs> this whole generation has changed but but on the other hand you know that whole, that again the story is written as a historical fact um and, and but also as as a sort of a a, a memory, right? The, the feeling of of what this all was like, um, so that those that are coming into the field now, and especially after the war or during the war, um, can can recognize uh, where this was coming from.
1: Mm. And so finally, as we're sort of coming up on the end of our time, um, I wanted to ask. This is not a sort of happy topic, um, and not an easy question to answer, I'm sure, um, but I did want to ask about, you know, the effects of the current uh, war in Ukraine on, uh, or to the extent that you know those effects um, on uh, the Romani in uh, Transcarpathia specifically, um, or Ukraine more broadly, Um, just what that sort of looks like um and if you sort of know i just you know as a sort of very rapidly evolving situation um what the those effects might be on romani musical communities um, and music making specifically as well how that's changing and affecting uh uh, the Romani's ability to make a living through music to sort of export their music or what it might be doing to uh, the themes uh, and sort of thematic content of Romani music as well.
0: I think the last part of that question uh, can can actually be answered pretty straightforward in a a straightforward way. Um, There's a significant shift uh, in, for instance, the public um, music making um, among Roma, not not just in Transcarpathia but across uh, Ukraine. even in, in in the eastern parts where we have a language shift, um, there's quite a, a bit more music that's now being um, sung in Ukrainian, which was never really the case for Roma. They either sang in Russian or they sang in Romany. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have um, the themes. Um, so they're actually engaging in a lot of this uh, public um, music making that either takes very popular uh songs, Ukrainian songs, either from World War II um, that are now being sung in all contexts relating to the war. It's a rallying cry. Um, I, My own godmother, uh, god, goddaughter actually appeared in a Romani goddaughter appeared in a Vi- music video mm-hmm. that became one of the most popular videos in Ukraine with Roma and non-Roma mm-hmm. musicians um so again a, a very significant shift that that kind of blurring of music industries would not have happened prior to the war or it was actually much harder to do um what we're looking at uh in in general among uh, Roma is um volunteering into the army which was mm-hmm. really Uh, It's something that needs to be highlighted and stressed that Roma are participating uh, politically um, and actively in resistance um, contexts. Um, and again, that's kind of breaking again that stereotype that Roma are apolitical or they've been pushed out of politics. Here, um, many have actually been voted into um, city councils. This was not uh, the the common norm before, mm-hmm. so you know there's the, the as society shifts um we're starting to see this and this is actually coming at the cusp of extreme anti roma uh sentiments that were peaking um around 2017 2018 there were a lot of um nationalist attacks on mm-hmm. romani settlements so to have roma take That power back is really a significant uh, situation that we are tracking.
1: And I did say that was my final question, but I have a follow up, uh, which is you know, given how long you've been working on this topic and how long you've worked in this region, uh, and as you said, the sort of uh, successive decades of protests and upheavals that you that have then kind of impacted your field work. Has it? Is it easier for you now um, to sort of conduct research or stay in touch with the communities that you work on from abroad, given, you know, social media, access to the internet, things like that? Are you able to stay in touch better with, you know, the communities that you've uh, lived among and the networks that you forged now compared to, you know, 15, 20 years ago?
0: Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think you know everybody now is on social media, and it's very easy to connect. Um, one of the things that's uh, that's complex about this, I think, is that you know life moves on. So life oh. moves on for them. Life life moves on for me. I've written other books. I've uh, focused on on hip hop. I've worked in a prison context. Here, I became um, you know the dean of undergraduates at the University of Pittsburgh. Since that time, so you know this all changes uh, very much. On the other hand, w- what I think that they see in me, and I hope that they see in me, is somebody who can create opportunities for them. So mm-hmm. those that are coming into the United States, those that are mm-hmm. representing um, Ukraine, uh, you know, on a, on a higher level now, I, I'm able to facilitate certain things for them, um, while at the same time, you know, still very much uh my heart is with with those that i remember from these um very impoverished contexts and unfortunately those contexts haven't changed and that's what is so dramatic and so disheartening that no matter how many times i've i've written this story that you know these buildings are still the same these mm-hmm. houses are still, that tuberculosis rate is still the same and when When will the Ukrainian government finally take this responsibility onto themselves? And we're starting to see inroads into this. Um, But now we also have uh, a whole nother group of international organizations that are moving across, that are working in Ukraine. And I pray that they are not moving Roma out of that context that they are helping everyone because Roma are are very much uh you know at the central fabric of Ukrainian society.
1: Right. Well, that's not the most optimistic note to end on, but perhaps a suitable one nonetheless. Um, Thank you so much uh, for coming on to talk to me and to share a little bit more about your research. I learned a lot from your book um, and learned even more from uh, talking to you just now. So thank you so much. Thank you very much.